support for Around with Stephen Cole comes from Infinium Spirits, a family-owned spirits company specializing in the import, sales, and marketing of its distinctive portfolio of brands. Infinium Spirits, igniting brands. Welcome back, faithful listeners. I'm Stevie Mata. I'm T. Cole Newton. And coming to you pre-recorded for my Mid-City Bar 12-Mile Limit, it's time for Around with Steve and Cole. Welcome back to Around with Stephen Cole, everybody. This is your host, T. Cole Newton. I am here, as always, with the Shadow King of New Orleans, Mr. Steve Yamato, my co-host. You know, I'm really getting used to that nickname by now. I'm pretty happy with it. My sister called me the Shadow King of New Orleans the other day. I think she was mocking me, but, you know, we're siblings, so that's I, yeah. Kind of what you get She's used supposed to. to mock you, and you... Yeah, I, yeah, it works. Yeah. It works. Isn't the, is the sh- Was the Shadow King an X-Men villain? <laughs> so maybe. I'm not, like, not 100% sure. Nick, do you know that offhand? Not at all, man. Ah, first season of Legion, the main <laughs> villain was played by Aubrey Plaza, and I think it's the Shadow King, but it might be like the Night King or the Shadow Prince or something like that. Anyway, cool. not relevant to our current conversation. I'm an X-Men villain. I got it. Yeah, you, you could be. Cool. If you, watch, if you apply yourself. It's a pretty boring villain. <laughs> our, our arch nemesis is a bartender in New Orleans. What does he <laughs> yeah. do? Records a podcast. He's good at tiki. <laughs> yep. He yeah. must be stopped. He's a monster. We have a couple of excellent guests with us today. Uh, we have Mr. Nick Jarrett, a bartender extraordinaire at such places as Cure and the Saint. Uh, anywhere else you got on your, uh, your current list right now? Santos right now. In the oh, and Santos. Well. Yeah, yeah, yep. yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, the new saint in the French Quarter, as it were. Mm-hmm. Not that they're exactly the same, but it's got a similar idiom. Beautiful Decatur Street. The beautiful yeah. Decatur Street. I used to live right above there. Amazing. Really? Yeah. That's really cool. When when did you live there? Uh, about six months ago. Okay. Okay. I didn't know there were still, still apartments that were there. That was the um, that was one of the first underage bars I could really drink at back in the day when I got here. It what was, was it then? The Whirling the Dervish. Whirling Dervish. Uh, I've heard about it. Yeah. In the Ruby Fruit Jungle, that's an amazing uh, lesbian bar yeah. name. I was actually above Angelie, but okay. I could throw a rock at Santa. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that voice I, you're hearing now, just so I can, uh, <laughs> if I may interject, is Angie Z, uh, burlesque dancer, uh, stripper, singer, and well, any any other uh, ways you hang your hat, Angie? How else do you identify? Um, I I mean that's that's pretty good. I think you got most of them. Okay, well, cool. Sorry to interrupt. Uh, talk, Ruby Fruit Jungle. Tell, tell us about that. That was oh, another thing in the Santos yeah, location. Yeah, there is a, a lesbian bar called the Ruby Fruit Jungle, which is just fun to say. Yeah, Super and brave really really sexy. Yeah, yeah. It's been weird because that location's really excellent with the upstairs space and with what they did with the Saint. Like, it's interesting. I feel like. With the smoking ban not being any around any, well, the smoking ban being in place, like this Santos is never going to get the characteristics that the Saint has. Just like years of indoor smoking in that mm-hmm. tiny indoor space has like added so much character to the space. Like it's always going to be a little bit cleaner, or it's going to take a longer time to kind of get that like that grime on there that makes that perfect like dark dive bar. Well, you got the doors open on Decatur. The trash trucks come by regularly. Mm-hmm. That sounds pretty good. <laughs> Give it a couple minutes. The you just throw dirt and mud on the walls. Is leaving me of the bar that was there before Spitfire. Spitfire. That's yeah. right. Because yeah, they did, did uh, Vixens and Vinyl Vixens there and vinyl, for a yeah. long time, which mm-hmm. was also super confusing because. That opened the same time Spitfire, Spitfire Coffee did yeah. when they're like that, that couldn't, know, five uh, blocks away, right? Well, uh, let's let's we do a little uh, getting to know you bits. Uh, so let's let's talk about a uh, you know wh- what brought you to New Orleans, what your career was like before then. Uh, ladies first, I guess. <sighs> yeah. um, I have always wanted to live in New Orleans since the the minute I stepped foot, and I couldn't believe I'd have never been here before. Uh, I'm a jazz singer and a burlesque dancer. How long ago was your first visit? Um, it 
was maybe six years ago. And how long after that before you moved here? Uh, well, I've been here for three and a half years. Okay. So it took so, a little while to actualize. Yeah. It, like it, just the perfect situation opened up and, and then I just had to. So um, it was all set up for me to, to come here and, and I'm still here. Um, but I never really wanted to call myself a jazz singer. I still kind of feel weird about saying it, but I wanted to learn how to sing jazz. Hmm. And I've gotten the opportunity to do that and uh, make my living as an artist. In this city, it really provides. And it's also one of the cheapest cities to live in. Well, not not, not as much as it used to be. We've we've talked a lot about rising housing prices and things like that. How about you, Nick? What's your What's your story? Oh man, I mean, I was first down here when I was twenty one. So okay, came down for a road trip in uh, two thousand and four, and I mean, was down on and off for tails five six years before I moved in. All right, where were you working when you came down for tails? Uh, between Philadelphia and New York, for the most part. All right. You were at Clover Club at one point. Clover or? Club, Franklin, Flatiron, right? Franklin. Yeah, some of some of the big names at the time, and still up, all of those sure. places are still sure. open too. Yeah, they've yeah. seen continued success, which is often rare now that this landscape has become more yep. and more competitive. I just, suppose at the high end. Yep. Just finally came down one summer and stayed. Yeah, I mean, it's a city. Was it, were, you, were you planning on that when you came down? Was it like this is the one I'm gonna I'm gonna stay, or did you just about, get here and you were like, Nah, I'm, I'm good. I'm not going. About back. like two months notice. So okay. well, this is the move. This right is the on. one. Yep. Did you? Uh, where are you from originally? Is that that the area you're from? New York, Philadelphia? No, I was raised outside of Seattle. Really? So okay. Northwest originally. All right. How'd you end up in New York? I mean, again, just moved out for school towards the Philadelphia area, and then uh, you know, New York seemed like the place to move to. Cool. Cool. Yeah. I mean, you definitely had quite the reputation up there. I mean, definitely working in some high profile places. People still talk about you. I was just at a Monkey 47 uh, seminar and Lacey Hawkins uh, had a drink that you had made at the Clover Club, I believe, on the slide. And she just was like, this is a delicious drink. And Nick Jarrett's a great person. And and all these other things too. So I, mean, I was sorry to miss her when she was in town. Yeah, she's she's pretty fantastic. Hello, Lacey. I don't know if you listen to our podcast, but <laughs> she's better Lacey? now. Hi, yeah. so nice. <laughs> but um, that's kind of interesting as well. I think you were a little bit on the forefront of bartenders who were in major markets moving down here. I mean, Cure definitely broke the ice with that a little bit, and then. After that, like more opportunities started uh, materializing for bartenders to be able to come down sure, and find sure. that quality of job here. Uh, why don't we talk a little bit about that? Uh, just in terms of moving down here? Yeah. You once told me, I, I, full disclosure, I was trying to poach Nick uh, to go work at Coquette when I was leaving Coquette because I wanted to leave it in good hands. And I think Nick is yep. one of the best bartenders I know. Um, he declined and said that the only places you wanted to work, and you explicitly moved to New Orleans to work at both Cure and The Saint. And by doing that, you were you, you were self-actualized. You, had to, you felt no need to take on any managerial mm-hmm. role somewhere else or yeah, that, I mean, was that, was that was that accurate, or were you just oh, yeah. like, feeding oh, yeah. me a line at the time? <laughs> no, it's kind of funny, and I mean, maybe fitting for what we're talking about today. But I actually moved down because the saint offered me a gig. Okay, so I moved down. Uh, I came down for Katie Darling's birthday, and uh, was she managing the saint at the time? She was bartending over there. Okay, I believe she just started working at Block as well. But uh, I came down for her birthday. Benji offered me a couple happy hour shifts. I said, I, I always love the saint. Why not move down and give it a shot for a couple of months? Mm-hmm. And then after that, I came down and Neil came and found me and was like, why don't you want to work at Cure? <laughs> <laughs> Neil has never said that to me. Yeah, that's, that's, a, pretty, that's a pretty explicit uh, endorsement, I guess, for lack of a better term. Well, he was pretty drunk at Tiki Oki. So. Oh, okay. <laughs> and we know how Neil feels about Tiki. So, 
Loves that pineapple juice. Right. All right. How, how about you, Angie? What, did you have a gig lined up when you moved here? And how, how long did it take to sort of establish yourself in the, the burlesque and then later the, uh, the music community? Uh, well, I was uh, really close with Bella Blue. So, well, it was and am. Um, she booked me a lot. She really believed in me. And uh, she made it really easy for me to start working here. And then, you know, uh, because I'd visited so much. Once I came here, I kind of stopped going anywhere else to, to work. So I would come here and I would book a bunch of different shows there so everybody knew me. And then through singing and burlesque shows, I was able to get more serious clothed singing <laughs> jobs, uh, which has been really nice because it's hard to travel as a singer by myself and be mm-hmm. like, hey, I'm a lady singer. Can I sing with your band? And they're like, oh, sure. I'm sure you can sing. I'm like, no, you really can't. So you do, <laughs> you do a burlesque show and then you sing in it, which also the old, like, you got to have a gimmick thing. It, it helps me get booked too because you, there's like this, uh, like a, Titty blindness, they say. If you're just getting boobs, 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 boobs in a show, and then you're like, I just saw so many boobs, I don't even care anymore. <laughs> and then you have some singing boobs, and then it's it's a the little law more of th- diminishing yeah. boobs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's it's a thing. That's why you know the burlesque shows. Even back in the day, they'd have a comedian or a magician and this or that. So yeah, Bella made it really uh, really easy for me to start getting booked, and I'm I still work with her a lot. Um, but when my situation changed, I needed more money. And I guess we're probably going to get to that. Well, let's get to that. What is your, so your situation changed. You wound up, you're living alone now, single girl in the French yeah, Quarter. Yeah, no, I, I moved here with, I moved in with somebody immediately, which was like a crazy, crazy thing to do that worked for a little while. Um, but then when that didn't work anymore, uh, I didn't want to leave the French Quarter because I love the French Quarter. And like my tagline is the French Quarter fairy tale. And I didn't want to change it. <laughs> Who wants to rebrand? It's no, so and I just, a lot of people don't like living in the quarter. I love it. It's part of, you know, why I wanted to live here. So um, I was encouraged to try being a stripper. And I did it. And um, one of my best friends started doing it with me too, Cherry Bombshell, who's also an amazing burlesque dancer. Um, and we fucking loved it. Can mm. we say that? Yeah, we're, Absolutely. we're, we're yeah. explicit yeah. 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 I don't think we utilize it as much as we should. Oh. Fuck. Fuck hell damn. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's one of my favorite words, so I'll bring it back. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I started stripping uh, to afford to live in the French Quarter because now, I mean, my apartment above on Decatur was amazing. And, sure. And he'd been in there for so long, and like, I was not going to be able to afford a place like that for that price. Mm-hmm. But... Um, but I found something and, uh, and I found stripping and stripping bourbon streets, pretty amazing because you can make the most money for doing the least, I feel like in a lot of the markets and we get a lot of tourism. So there's like really interesting kind of attractive people that come in and Mm -hmm. you get to talk to whoever you want and you can have a good time and make a lot of money. And now I can live in the French quarter. My burlesque costumes have gotten better because of all (laughs) the money. And I mean, there's a lot of 
there's a lot of things. Right on. Yeah, you are actually the uh, second stripper we've had on the show. Uh, our friend Marcy came on. We did an episode about you her. Yeah. Betty from yeah, I know Marcy. <laughs> yeah, you got, they work together. Oh, okay. Excellent. Yeah. Um, and it was a little, I don't want to say it was like super enlightening to me. It's not like I've, I've isolated myself away so that I don't know any strippers at all, but uh, it was a, it was a very you good You also candy. work in the French Quarter. Let's be yeah, You probably yeah. know more than I you mean, think yep. you know. Oh my gosh. <laughs> they're everywhere. They're like, they're real people, yeah. right? It's crazy. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Jesus. This state sometimes. Um, but uh, it was a very good candid conversation, and I don't think that like I've ever had a venue to just talk to somebody about why you got into this, how you got into this, and then making the comparison and there shouldn't be a comparison. There's no like dichotomy there. When you talk about the service industry, stripping is part of the service industry. There's no power dynamic there. 100%. I mean, this is the the industry. There's no separation yeah. between the two things. And we're all therapists. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. We're just well, I, uh, emotional dumping grounds, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I really hope that any life advice I've given to anybody like um, hasn't really been embraced. Like one of the things, like when <laughs> when college kids come in here, I'm totally well. Well, college grad school kids, it's like drop out of school. That's like my, my biggest piece of advice. Waste of money. You. You're dropping up debt. <laughs> Look at me. Yeah. yeah. But um, yeah, no, it's it's really interesting to see um people coming in and this is like there's this commonality about like, you know, uh getting a better quality of life and also just mm-hmm. like really enjoying, you know, the activity. Like the narrative gets painted so much about like what like strip culture is like and what it mm-hmm. is, and especially the narrative that the city's driving right now with all this crap Crazy. that we can definitely get into. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, it's, it's just good to hear like and meet people with real voices who are just like, yeah, this is great. And like my life is much better for this. It's amazing. This is it's, for those of you who have gotten this far into the episode and are wondering what our two guests have in common. This episode was inspired by a conversation Angie and I were having it was probably a couple of years ago at this point. Um, we were having a couple drinks together and you were talking about the amount of money that you were investing in costumes and the amount of effort that you were investing in costumes. And it occurred to me that there's a real parallel between the sort of relationship between burlesque and stripping, which in in most ways are essentially different versions of the same job uh, and the relationship between craft cocktail bartending and uh, bartending in a dive bar or a club or or, or some other non-craft environment, high volume environment. And so for a while I was like, okay, we should do, we should do an episode about that. But I I don't know anybody who works in a club. And it's like, wait, I do know somebody who works in a dive bar and, and, and a cocktail bar. And to be fair, both of those bars are, are highly acclaimed. The sure. Saint and Cure have been, at least three out of the four years that they put together the top 10 bars in New Orleans list and NOLA.com have both have been on there. Yep. So these are both like very, very well thought of bars. But the idea that it was thinking about it when Angie and I were talking about her putting so much time and energy and money yeah. I into probably these wasn't costumes. a stripper at that point. Either. You were not yet. No. Mm-hmm. Um, that that like the that bartenders and craft bars invest so much time and and creative energy and their own money a lot of the time yeah, to go like, find the obscure ingredients like go out to the west bank to go to the asian market to find some weird botanical so they can make this syrup that other and that that yeah that, and it, it becomes this sort of enterprise but it, it, at the same time you make a lot less money in a craft bar you make a lot less money i've i've yeah, bartended I mean, a lot of different places before and like the the stark drop off from being able to work in a nightclub to working at a craft bar, it's just like double the effort. Crazy. I mean, it's a different type of work, but it's so it's they're like probably tipping it. you the same mm-hmm. on but a, on the a volumes, cocktail that took you like yeah, five minutes sure. to make. I ain't trash. Right. No, I am no, not no. destroying my rotator cl- uh, cuff popping Bud Lights at a club. You know? And, no, and no, no. similarly, between burlesque and stripping, there's 
that earning potential. Like you can make a couple hundred bucks maybe for an, a whole day's worth of work doing burlesque, or you can make a thousand dollars at the club in a few hours mm-hmm. on a good night, not yeah. necessarily every night, every single but. night. <laughs> <laughs> um, and but and that earning potential is an in an inverse relationship to the social acceptability. 100%. So if you're bartending in a club, people are more likely to ask what you're doing with your life. Whereas if you're bartending in a craft cocktail bar, there's that veneer of respectability sure. that comes yeah. with that. And the same that burlesque is considered a, a legitimate performance art because another 1% of your epidermis is covered. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But it's, and, and being a stripper is like, oh, we have to save this poor girl from herself and the terrible choices that she's making. <laughs> so let's cut back over to you, Nick, real quickly. Um, sure. I actually, I know of your experience bartending at some of the more uh, more pronounced locations you've been at. Uh, but what is your overall background in bartending? Did you, go, let's just go into that. Just, well, I mean, I took a real interest in drinks and bartending when I was in college. So, <clears throat> Did your interest in cocktails come before or after your interest in bartending? Same time. Same time. Okay. I mean, from probably 2000 on, I was very interested in drinks and the social aspects of bartending. Um, I went through a period after leaving college where I worked in other bars. But it's sort of funny, the first legitimate job I got was working at a hotel cocktail bar. I worked there for four years, did everything in the hotel, left to go open, not the first, but the first sort of modern cocktail bar in Philadelphia, mm. and immediately took a massive pay cut. <laughs> and, and working longer hours and immediately lost two thirds of what I was making. Right. So, uh, that's, that's interesting. So, um, so hotel bar and then craft cocktail bar, craft cocktail bar. what was the first instance of you working in what would be considered a dive bar? I mean, I actually did time in clubs before that. Really? Okay. In a big mega club in New York called Prom. Okay. And that was not long after taking the job at the cocktail bar that I was on. So again, like you lose two thirds of your income. Yeah. You've got to make up the difference somewhere. Right. You have to dress nicer, too. Uh, yeah. The, yes. clothes, the clothes aren't free. Yeah. The clothes aren't free. <laughs> well, that's cool. Do you ever miss those club days? I mean, you know, I, I get reminded every now and then of the Saint Lane there. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> the Saint turns into a dance party often enough that it's, I mean, it's, it's kind of a club in its own way. It gets going. It is, gets it going. Like, uh, is it just like you have memories back to like your worst club shifts or you're like, this is nice. Like, I, I, I kind of strike that balance like sure. different ways. Like, on like Endymion when it's crazy here. It's just like, you know, cocktails for yeah, the most yeah, part kind of go out the window and all of a sudden it's just like, I can still do this, like popping beers. I mean, likewise fast. too, like at a club in New York and the mid to late aughts, like you walk in, you wouldn't get busy until one o'clock. Mm-hmm. You'd give last call at three o'clock and you'd leave with $1,200. Yeah. Day. It was that, a crazy, that, crazy two hours, but <laughs> that doesn't happen in at yeah. twelve miles. <laughs> no, uh, yeah, I don't think anyone's ever made twelve hundred dollars. Not, 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 not yet, not yet, not yet. Come, come, give Steve a twelve hundred dollar tip tonight and prove us wrong. So, <laughs> that, that, that kind of started up. I ended up moving to New York full time. Still, have always maintained working in cocktail bars because I love the creativity, I love the history, I love the background. Mm-hmm. But as time has gone on, I've always spent more time working at dive bars, clubs. Venues at this point. I mean, it pays the bill, and it's still the same thing, just not quite as involved. Right on. Yeah. So, would you say at that point you, the the commonality between the two is the social interaction? I feel that's that's kind of the same thing. Like providing that service might be a different type of service, but it's definitely you know interacting yeah, I mean, with customers in a similar way. And Jamie, maybe you'd agree, but like burlesque, the tease is part of stripping, mm-hmm. but there's a whole lot more that also goes on. Uh, yeah. Well, in burlesque, like. 
but I don't have to talk to anyone. Yep. <laughs> 100%. I hide in the dressing room. But what you just said about um, the creativity and the history and originality, like that is, that's exactly how I feel about burlesque. Like it, it's been a venue for me to use all of these little skills that I have. Uh, and put them all together, sure. and yeah. and that I might not be able to use otherwise. To some extent, as well, do does I mean we were already talking about the costumes getting better and then being able to afford your quality of life um, for you, Nick, as well. Living in New York certainly isn't cheap. Was the 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 club and then the dive bartending and then the stripping like those aspects of your careers was part of that a necessity then to be able to enjoy that other part of your career? I mean, I'd say a hundred percent in New York, especially. I have to go out and visit other people's bars. Mm-hmm. Free drinks and like friends' privileges only go so far. You're going to go out and actually taste a lot of things and get an education, especially the parts that you're paying for. Like doing that on just a cocktail salary, is yeah, difficult to manage. That's a really excellent point too. I know definitely in this field, like part of it is you have to go out, you have to be present if you're going to make it in this industry. Oh, yeah, part I mean, is networking and going to other. And bars. beyond that too, I mean, there are a lot of opportunities in the cocktail and beverage world, but you still have to take off work for them. And yeah. that's, that's true in the burlesque community, too, right? You were just telling me the other day that you're going to the Burlesque Hall of Fame and you're paying out of pocket to go oh, yeah. to this. Ex- yeah. You know, it's a, it's a conference and a mm-hmm. showcase, but it's also an important networking opportunity. Oh, in the yeah. Industry. Everyone wears their best outfits and, and you see some of the best acts in the world. Mm. Um, but, but, yeah, it's like what you were saying about wanting to go out and see sure. other things. Like being a burlesque dancer, like I could make it. But nobody's giving you a gold star for being a struggling artist. Yeah. Like, yeah. No. <laughs> really? Like, no. Crazy. Like, like, go do do your your side hustle, this or that, and yeah. and then you know, and they they help each other too. In the burlesque world, um, what is the makeup? I mean, I, I I've met many burlesque dancers at this point. And there's a lot of different backgrounds uh, to it. But would you say that like is stripping a common thing for a lot of burlesque dancers to supplement their lifestyle? Um. I mean, well, stripping's not for everyone. Sure. But they they go so hand in hand, and the burlesque dancers are the grandmothers of the strippers. Mm-hmm. Like, Bourbon Street was all burlesque clubs in the 60s, and then they became the bikini bars, and like these topless go-go mm-hmm. places, and now they are the strip clubs that they are today. So, you know, I also feel like I'm being part of history. Yeah, by, the history is amazing on yeah, that, too. Yeah, by being a, a stripper on on Bourbon Street and I'm part of somebody's New Orleans experience <laughs> and and I also bring a lot of the burlesque to stripping which is probably something you're gonna yeah you mentioned well. that, that you that, that that's one of the other things that I think uh, is there's some crossover here is that is the is cross training mm-hmm. is that and I would and I have never really worked in a in a high volume club or dive bar uh, 12 mile limit is a, is a neighborhood bar but we're not the same yeah, kind yeah. of high volume that that we're talking about and I have no experience in, in performance arts, so um, we can talk. But I, I've yeah, you spoken. You do stand up, right? I, I, that's true. I do stand up sometimes. And you sometimes. read books on the internet. <laughs> Occasionally. Um, okay, so I'm, I have a bit of a performative streak. And I have this podcast where I get to talk all I want. Um, so you're a fucking liar, is what I, you're saying. Yeah, let's go back. Bring it back. Scratch Bring that. Back. I'm not 
I don't have any experience as a professional dancer. <laughs> um, but my impression, mostly from our conversations, is that there's, it, you get better at both by doing both. That, doing, that working in a high-volume place makes you a better cocktail bartender. And I would imagine there's ways that working in a cocktail bar makes you a better high-volume bartender. 100%. And, a, a, and feel free to elucidate me on this as well, that being a burlesque performer makes you a better stripper, oh, and yeah. being a stripper makes you a better burlesque performer. Well, I started stripping at 31, which is... Kind of crazy, but also I've been a burlesque dancer for so long, and I've I've learned about personality in my performance. So that's what I can bring to being a stripper, and why I you know, do well. <laughs> <laughs> Not just another pretty face, but you actually have yeah, you have like, a character that you're portraying. I, you can or... see who I am by the way that I dance, and on the same, you know, the other side of the coin, being a stripper has really helped my burlesque because I get instant feedback about what I'm doing. So whether it's like money flying or people paying attention because they don't have to pay attention to you in the strip club. Mm -hmm. And at a burlesque show, they're like, they're trained to... To clap for everything. They're... they're, In the beginning of the show, they're instructed. (laughs) (laughs) So I can never really base how I'm doing on this audience. But at the strip club... If I'm emptying their wallet, I'm doing a good job. That's kind of a good point. I've never thought about that. Like when a when a dan- when a stripper finishes dancing in a strip club, like nobody claps. Like why don't they? Right? I mean, that, that's an act. That's a Sometimes performed act or something do. like. Sometimes. Do they? <laughs> I don't think I've ever been. Just like I want to see a slow clap. I want to be a strip club where someone's just like yeah, just just just. Yeah. <laughs> like for for instance, Rick's Cabaret, they have this. They have a, a fan on the floor that uh. nobody uses and it's this really cool because it, it, I think they used it more in the 90s when, sure. when stripping was a lot different but I always turn the fan on for my second number and then like I'll walk out and I'll stand on top of the fan and all of a sudden I'm like <laughs> so I'm, I'm using all the, cool. the the theatricality but that's not always what somebody wants Somebody sometimes they just want like a pretty blonde that's going to laugh at their jokes <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah, the instant feedback is a great point. Mm-hmm. And I mean, that's made a huge effect to me, I think, in cocktails. Like, the degree of speed of interactions that you deal with regulars, forming people, at a dive bar or club, you deal with so many more people mm-hmm. in a nightly basis on an hour-by-hour basis. You definitely get to see more what works with people and what doesn't. Right. And uh, I mean, you know, it's all about regulars at either or. So mm-hmm. the more people you get coming in the same way, like, you know you're doing something right. Yeah. Uh, likewise, on the flip side, I mean, before I started working in clubs and so on, I was destroying my shoulders and my body. Mm-hmm. Mm. Cold draft ice. Because, yeah, I mean, you have no idea how to do it properly. Once you're in clubs and higher volume environments, you really pare it down. So everything is much more streamlined, simple, efficient. I ache much less working much longer hours than mm. I ever used to. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, that's that's one of the things, you know, I think as there have been more craft cocktail bartenders and like, you know, the way that like some things are kind of fetishized, like in the craft cocktail world, like look at my crazy jerky hard shake that I do here. It looks really (laughs) wonderful. Like this is my Japanese 10 point shake or something like that. I want to see somebody do that. Like in a high volume, like Clover club, like do that for like five years and then just say, cool. Yeah. Two torn rotator cuffs, like, you know, (laughs) tendonitis in both your elbows. It's just like the first guy I opened, I definitely dislocated my left shoulder during service. 
Yeah. And Shake him. And then I had to have my bar back bang it back in. <laughs> Keep going through a busy shift yeah. with a limp arm like this. When Cold Draft was first coming out, I remember I went to the Violet Hour, and the sales rep used to have swag that they would give away. Yeah, like body, they had body by Cold Draft. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And it used to be at this, like, yeah, my upper body's really good. And then, like, you know, those disappeared pretty quickly. One, because right. the relationship between the distributors of Cold Draft was pretty bad because they're a horrible company. Uh, and two, Ouch. it wasn't so, helping yeah, anybody's body, shoulders. Body by Cold Draft. Yeah. What is that? So cold draft is a style of ice. It's a one inch by one inch by one inch cube that's uh, slow frozen. So it's supposed to be crystal clear, but it's super heavy, super hard ice. Okay. So the whole idea was like it dilutes slower inside of a drink with getting it to the right temperature, but it's very heavy. So and if you're scooping it, you're like stabbing a wall. Yep. If you're shaking it, it's different from regular yeah, ice. The, yeah, the, like one of the biggest problems with shaking, I feel, because um, I use soft ice at both the place I'm at now, is like with softer ice, it's it's spread out. So it's a larger like volume. But with cold draft, it kind of surface together. area relative yeah. to the volume. So it stays as a larger clump. So it's just this big ball or block of ice that you're moving back and forth. So it's this heavy weight mm. moving back like very quickly, as hard as you possibly can. Yep. So it's just, it's basically like, let me sling this back as hard as I can. And it's going to stop abruptly. And then I have to like move that momentum wave. back. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. That's, 100% a shake. That is, yeah. It is a sh- it's the original we, shake. We wave. talked a bit, uh, we had a, a guest on who works at a snowball stand in the first, epi- uh, first season. And we talked a bit about ice because they have very specific needs for their yeah, ice. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and we talked about what we do for ice here. And cold draft is great. Or at least any sort of large format ice works really well for maintaining a cocktail yep. at an optimal temperature with minimal dilution. If you want to serve something on the rocks, it's very good for yeah, that. that makes sense. But it's not necessarily optimal for cocktail creation because a lot of your cooling yeah. comes from the water entering the cocktail surface contact. and the yep. surface contact. So you're, you're, you're shutting that down to a surf- certain extent if you have a larger piece of ice because the surface area is where that interaction happens. Contest bartending, that shows up a lot because you'll get people who work in bars that don't have cold draft or they've got a different type of ice there. So then when they go to prepare their cocktail, you're like, this cocktail's not cold enough and it's not diluted enough because they're just not used to working with that product. I, yeah. I always hate to see that. Whenever I'm at a competition they don't have different types of ice that are prepared, it's just like, yep. you it's know, rough. you're, you're yeah. hindering people. You're giving an advantage to the people who have better resources. I mean, it's <clears throat> intrinsic bias that's being introduced mm-hmm. to a lot of things. But and isn't goes, that cocktail contest when we're really talking uh, about it? And that's the bias right there. The, the better resources. Exactly. Mm-hmm. The perceived better resources, yeah. which fits in perfectly with this episode. Totally. Anywho, um, I think this is a good time to take a break since we're talking about cocktails at the moment. We're going to jump behind the bar real quick with our mid-show uh, break segment. interstitial, if you will. Right on, right on. So uh, we're going to be back in a second. Y'all hold on tight, and we'll see you then. All righty. Cool, cool. All righty, y'all. It's Steve, and I am going to be taking this behind the bar segment solo today. We've got a two-for-one here for you, kind of to fit in with the theme of this show. Uh, the first drink that we're going to make is going to be a Boilermaker. It's going to be featuring Templeton Rye and a fantastic beer that we carry at 12 Mile Limit, which is called the Fire Ant Red, which comes from Southern Prohibition Brewery. It's your typical red ale. It's got a nice hot portfo- uh, profile to it. If you don't have access to this beer, uh, any red ale will do, but it fits in extremely well with that spicy rye note that comes from the Templeton Rye. Uh, as with any Boilermaker, you can combine the two ingredients if you'd like to. I personally like keeping them separate and doing it like a sangria style. Take a sip of whiskey, take a sip of beer. It goes really well together. It's the kind of drink you can order at any bar that you go to, whether it's a fancy craft cocktail bar or any local dive bar. The next cocktail is actually going to use 
both of these ingredients inside of it. Uh, it's going to be a take on a shandy, which is perfect for the warmer weather that hopefully most of us will be getting pretty soon. Uh, our first ingredient is going to be fresh lemon juice. We're going to take one ounce and pour it into the shaker. Next, we're going to add three quarters of an ounce of simple syrup. I always like to use uh, 60 40 simple syrup. It's right in between uh, a standard one to one and a two to one simple syrup. Um, I don't like my simple syrup to be too rich. Uh, it kind of overpowers and really changes the texture of the drink. And we want to keep the drink pretty light. Next, we're going to add four raspberries. I'm um, using raspberries. I like the tart nature of raspberries. Uh, any berry, honestly, will do this. Thing is, drink once again is supposed to be refreshing, a little bit on the milder side. Uh, so, you know, have fun with it. It doesn't have to be raspberries. You can play around with it any way you want to, really. Finally, we're going to add one and a half ounces of our Templeton rye. And we're going to close up the shaker and give a good shake on this. We're going to go ahead and double strain this out. Double straining is a technique where you remove excess ice chips or muddled debris from your cocktail. You could pour this straight in and leave some of the pulp in there, but I think that that kind of makes an unpleasant mouthfeel a little bit. So it's nicer to just take, like, to extract the flavor, but then take out, like, you know, the actual physical, like, you know, whatever you're muddling inside of your drink. Uh, we're going to add some ice into this Collins glass that we've poured our drink inside of. And finally, we're going to go ahead and top that off with our Southern Prohibition Fire Ant Red. Um, so really nice beer cocktail. Uh, it's kind of got like a lemonade, raspberry lemonade, beer kind of thing going on to it. It's it's a good drink for people who are like, ah, I don't like beer. You know, it's like beer can be used to as a topper using just some of that flavor to kind of add like different notes into a different cocktail. It's really fun, a really great way to, you know, make and expand your drink profile like during the summertime. Anyways, uh, I am going to take these drinks back out to the patio, meet out with everybody else, and we'll get this show on the road. Thanks. All right, we are back. Drinks in hand. Guests still here, ready to keep chatting about being uh, the performers and bartenders and all the other things that we do in our spare time that might or might not come up. And an episode of Around with Stephen Cole. These things tend to be very rambling conversations. We like it that way. Um, but we'll keep it, we'll keep it on, on topic for the time being, at least. Uh, there's a couple other, let's see, though, one of the things that, that came up yesterday, Angie and I were hanging out and the subject of some level of factionalism in the burlesque community came up. And I don't, I'm not trying to throw anyone under the bus or have you talk about any of the rival factions, specifically just the idea that there are factions. I can factions. do it without being specific. <laughs> Great. That's all we need. So I hate this dancer. I hate that dancer. <laughs> She's garbage. Terrible. Right. Um, but and it seems like that's, that there's a bit of that in the in the craft in the craft cocktail community too. 100%. That people sort of like there's these fault lines, and it's like I don't I don't necessarily understand it. I try to keep out of that fray as much as possible. It's not always possible, but yeah, you always, try. Always. Yeah, And you seem like somebody who sort of moves between all of the different factions sure. or just stays out of all of the factions. Uh, yeah. Rise above. Rise above. He's there you the go. the watcher. But meanwhile, I, I never, I mean, again, I have limited experience with high volume environments, but it seems like people just don't care. There isn't that same, like, I think it's the elevated sense of importance that comes with Oh, no, like, no, I'm going to completely you, disagree really? with that. Okay. Yeah. No, 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 no. Like back back when I worked like 
busier high volume bars and things like that like uh there were definitely factions like you know you were brothers in arms at that point and there was always like kind of like your crew would go to the after hours bar against some other crew kind of thing too and like there was always that like yeah we rang like ten thousand dollars tonight it's like, <laughs> we did this many covers yeah like, but i mean that's just like the sort of casual like back and forth work band sure. i would definitely agree with cole like it's nowhere near the same way it is in the cocktail world. No, no, it's not that, but it's it's not too far. You never see a club fighting a club or people talking. It's like West Side another. Story, just like, you know, no. rolling up. Never. <laughs> yeah. And and what, what I was talking about with Angie is that there isn't, that, that doesn't exist in the strip clubs either, that it's a much more like a positive community where yeah, everyone yeah. just sort of helps each other out. And it's a, it really it's, is. There's, there's always like the, you know, weirdo, dramatic yeah, people that are always causing problems. But for the most part, it's a super sisterly organization it's lovely do you do you have any speculation about why there's that disparity with the burlesque community why that why there's a little bit i don't know for lack of a less misogynistic term cattiness in the burlesque community well the thing with it's it's like everyone in the strip club is like getting their money and getting Mm, out and like you're and you're in there together and you know you're you're sharing a lot of the same experiences so you're you're bound to like bond and help each other and also it can be a lot more terrible Mm -hmm. than than being a burlesque dancer so being a burlesque dancer is this weird like kind of artistic thing that anyone can really do and people feel like they're entitled to a stage. Mm. And uh, it gets to be this thing where I'm sure this can can bleed over too, is like people will pay to go see a show and it won't be good because anyone can put on one. So they're not going to feel like they have to pay to come see your show. Yep, yep. And uh, Dan Savage put out this article a couple of years back that I just loved. Um, it was called the Burlesque Showa, and it was he was comparing it to um, the the drag queen uh, boom in the '90s, and it it got to be that any man that was willing to put on a dress could be a drag queen, and now it's any girl that's willing to take off her dress is a burlesque dancer, <laughs> and people are doing it for therapeutic reasons, which isn't a bad thing either, but it still has to be good, it has to be clean, it has to be. Uh, polished, rehearsed. It's it, it's a theater piece, like anything sure. else. We like I mean, to take feedback too. I'm sure that's that's an issue that oh, yeah. craft cocktails a lot. Like people mm-hmm. just like they think that they've got it, and then they are not always willing to you know take con- constructive criticism as well. Yeah. It's Man. also really hard to get feedback too because we're all so self governed. So mm-hmm. so it's hard to know like when the right time is to make it or take it. And most yeah, most people just don't want it. Yeah. And I mean, yeah, I think that's a good point, too, because, again, like, if you're working at a dance club or a club or a really busy dive bar, you're not generally worried about who's going to who else's show or dive bar. Cocktails, I feel, are more of less a zero-sum game. Like, people are worried, oh, go, well, we're doing better than here, doing better than there. Come over here. There's a smaller pool of people who are interested. And there's a smaller pool of clientele. Yeah, you're fighting over a so much smaller doing, slice of the pie. Yeah, if you're doing a cocktail night here or there, or if you're doing a burlesque show here or there, and Bourbon Street strip clubs are not going to be slow unless it's the middle of the summertime. Mm-hmm. And the Sane or a high-volume club is not going to be slow unless, again, you're in the deadest dead seasons. Mm-hmm. People will come by. Yeah. How much does pretension 
come into play there as well. Like with definitely the craft cocktail scene, like there's the idea of these people are doing it right. Or we we're talking about ice in the first half of our segment too. It's like sure. this bar is a good bar because they've got good ice. Like, yeah, you know, I mean, you get a lot of that. I mean, I feel that ultimately comes down to, again, there's been a big conversation mm-hmm. in bartending about hospitality and service. A good drink is going to be a good drink. Yeah. A lot of that is a service and all that. You can be like, oh, we use this kind of ice. We use these kind of liquors. But it's about the experience you're giving people. The quality of the cocktail, I mean, there's diminishing returns at a certain point. Right. It's a little bit weird to see, you know, you run across these listicles that I absolutely love. <laughs> and uh, uh, it's like you've got people predicting the next trend. It's like the yeah, next right. trend in craft cocktails, hospitality. Yeah. Yeah. Start taking <laughs> saying that for people. years. Sure. It's like, what the fuck? <laughs> like, like, like you guys clearly weren't offering good hospitality before. And you just, right. you decide to turn the switch on. It's like, now, now I'll be nice to people. But also, Jermaine, to, to Angie's point about, Anyone can do burlesque. I don't think anyone can be a bartender, but I do think that there's a much like yeah. people like I don't want to say amateurs, but people who have a more academic relationship with cocktails are more likely to given be given an opportunity to be a bartender cool. in a craft bar. I've said a hundred times, listen, bartending is a big skill set. Cocktails is using a measuring cup, which is a jigger, mm. to make a recipe in a glass. Anyone can follow instructions once they get the basic instruction. Mm-hmm. Bartending is a much bigger, more complicated thing. Yeah. Anyone can follow a recipe. Right. But but in cocktail bars, you're more likely to find people who have been given the opportunity to be bartenders who their only real competency among all of the things that are required to be a fully well-rounded bartender is that they are capable of making technically proficient cocktails. I mean, one of the going away goes... <laughs> no, no, absolutely not. With the craft cocktail movement, ugly cocktails. I mean, one of the ugly just... cocktails were definitely in. No, the bartenders. One of one well, of the... I would never be a bartender if that was the case. Yeah. Look at this. Right. Seriously, <laughs> you're, you're cute. You're at very least. cute. Oh, stop. Look at those dimples. Yeah, no longer the shadow king. I'm out of the shadows. <laughs> sunshine, baby, sunshine. Mm-hmm. Yeah, one of the going away gifts I would give leaving apprentices and bartenders a cure was taking them to the saint and showing them how to change a cake. <laughs> that's a really good gift I uh, yeah, I mean like come I, on over here I'll show you how to change a cake I feel like there was somebody who was working here at 12 mile and all maybe they maybe they still work here maybe they were just maybe it wasn't even at 12 mile I'm sorry I don't we have we we often teach people how to change their cake yeah yeah because I mean, this is a place where it's 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 a, not a dive bar exactly but it's it's a neighborhood bar we do a higher volume than the average cocktail bar the lower volume than a than a club well, I mean any you any, have to know any bar bag basic. anywhere knows how to change a cake yeah. it wasn't even the change in the keg it was Showing somebody how to pour a beer, like oh like, yeah, never yeah. Been, or that, never been there is a re- legitimate, t- yeah, that you have you have to pull it all the way. That's one of the things that I think the people make the mistake when they're pouring a draft sure. beer for the first time is they only open open a little, mm-hmm. and then just like oh, I just want to get a trickle going. I don't want to overflow it unless but you then, need to add some you, foam to the top, right? right? Unless you unless it's yeah, unless it's under under carbonated and you and need to foam it up a little bit. But it like makes it foamy when you super, narrow constrict the entrance. Super basic skill sets that anyone who's a bartender at a bar would have, right? But you don't necessarily need to become a cocktail bartender per se. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Huh. So, so <laughs> I'm just thinking back about all these things right now. So, um, Angie, I'd like to start with you with this kind of line of, of reasoning as well. Um, how important is mentorship? Um, like you were talking about like anybody thinks that they can kind of be not mentorship per se, but, you know, somebody, anybody can do burlesque. It's therapeutic for a lot of people. Uh, there's probably wrong or right steps to kind of get involved with it. Uh, can you speak a little bit towards that? Well, I mean, there's a lot of information now about mm. getting started. Um, just Google it. Oh, well, Joe, Joe <laughs> Weldon, uh, who's a burlesque dancer in New York, she put out the burlesque handbook, which I read about four or five years into it back when I was a 
baby burlesque and I thought I knew everything and I I learned so much just from that but when I first started there was no YouTube and I had to <laughs> I had to download like uh varieties which is Betty Page and Tempest Storm and they're just kind of like doing a dance you guys can't see but it's not it's not anything that would be acceptable now mm-hmm. and then old like Dita Von T's Andrew Blake movies so when we when it first started there wasn't really anything and we kind of had to learn together yeah so now a lot of people that are coming up they have Bella's uh, school of burlesque which she does a like a virgin workshop and she's been willing to impart her wisdom onto people, which a lot of people don't want to do because they're not interested in making competition. Uh, but if you're good, you don't worry about your competition right. and you want to help other people and you learn from helping other people. Yeah. It makes know. you better your craft, that regardless of what it is. An answer to your question. No, no, that's perfect. And the minute you said that, that's so funny because yeah. that's a direct parallel to a conversation we have had on this podcast mm-hmm. as well, where like we've talked about like these micro generations, like in like the technology boom, YouTube, especially, and just this information just gets like more and more prevalent. Like when I started getting into craft cocktails, um, it was all book learning. That was all there yep. was. was and there learning. were only like three books. Yeah. And, and <laughs> sneaking it, like not sneaking, but going to people's bars and like stealing like techniques from them basically. Like just, you wouldn't ask directly. You would just see how they do it and like take notes and like go home and do it. Or like you would yep. ask questions and sometimes they'd be willing to tell you. Sometimes they wouldn't be willing to tell you. Um, but then it was the same thing. It's like when, you know, as a smaller community of bartenders in New Orleans, like we had the Museum of the American Cocktail, and there's always this exchange of ideas to like make ourselves better. And now like we're just a couple years removed from that. I mean, it's getting longer. I'm getting older than anything else. <laughs> but uh, you can go onto YouTube. Like you've got all these blogs. You've got limitless resources to teach you everything. And I'm always just it's always kind of perplexes me a little bit that like all this information, like I would kill to have that information, those resources when I was trying to get just into the this skeletons of it that, but that are available now. It just, you know, I'm just dumbstruck when I meet people now who are like really interested. Well, they say they're really interested in getting into this and they just, they're like, Oh, how do I learn this? It's just like, did you Google all of this information <laughs> you have right here? You have all of this at your fingertips. It's just, it's like, no, 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 make it easier for me. Let me Google that for you. <laughs> yeah. Um, let, let me force feed this to you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. My favorite website. Let me Google that for you. <laughs> yeah, so good. Uh, so you talked a little bit about training, and um, you know we've talked about the cure process with the men, with the apprenticeship and sure. everything like that as well too. Um, what what is your experience with like mentoring like up and coming bartenders and other people as well? I mean, again, uh, you know, we obviously have the apprenticeship program over at Cure, and uh, Dram I think in New York had a pretty good training program. Flatiron and Clover Club, a couple of the bigger bartenders that started as barbacks. Mm-hmm. I think the head bartender of Clover Club and one of the other bartenders was a barback of mine over at Flatiron back in the day. Uh, I mean, you know, it's people who are passionate about it. Does the Saint take on baby bartenders or project bartenders? Like, would you, do you guys ever hire somebody who doesn't have like a lot of experiences? Like, let me teach you how to bartend here at the Saint. No, not No, really. everybody's got to have their teeth cut at some point. I mean, they come from a lot of different and diverse backgrounds, but it's, Usually pretty experienced people. Cool. Do you bring in barbacks and then train them up? Like if you if somebody is interested, do you have barbacks at the Saint? I we, don't think I've ever we seen do one Friday, We do on Fridays and Saturdays, oh, but right. I mean, when I don't go to the Saint, <laughs> but by that token, the barbacks are usually people who are in their thirties who have background who just mm-hmm. like the bar hmm. or are doing something else on the weekdays. It's not so much of a training bar. There's a lot of unattended time. Right. Um, do you? How do you feel about the trend? 
I've always been kind of struck by this statement with there's like craft cocktail bartenders and, you know, our, our money can be variable, especially like with the new restaurants opening up. People like, I'm just not making money. And like kind of like a solution that people just pencil in. It's like a Mad Lib where somebody's like, this isn't working. I need to do X to like make the money I need to do. That is like, I just need to find a neighborhood dive bar to work in. Like, you know, one, like it's super easy. Like, like they're owed this job. Yeah, right. <laughs> neighborhood dive bars are the hardest bars, by the way, to get jobs at because people don't leave because the money's usually Crazy difficult. Good. Yeah, usually. Um, but how do you how do you feel about that? Like like you just have people it's like, well, maybe I'll just go work at the Saint at some point. It's like no, people stay at the Saint. It's not an easy job to get. It's a good job. Yeah, I mean, we don't really have openings. It's, been a <laughs> it's Highlander rules. You got to cut Nick Jarrett's head off in order to get a job at the Saint. Yeah, I think the last person who started there new was probably like a year and a half ago. And yeah. Before that, it was like two years ago. I mean, Santos helped out because you brought in some new blood over there. So, but that just increases I, I, the pool. And, of I feel like almost everyone I know when you guys essentially doubled your staff when you opened Santos. Everyone I know who was brought on at that time was a regular. If they weren't already yeah, working at the Saint, they yeah, were a regular. Hundred percent. They were they were known. Well, I mean, I always say to people, yes, you should certainly diversify, especially if you're working in the cocktail world or anything. You don't want to get burned out by what you're doing. And cocktails, maybe burlesque, is the same way. Like it's a lot of work. You put a lot of money and time into it. Uh, you need to have, do something else while also paying your bills. Do people go to the world that you're at as well, Angie? And they're like. They're like they're maybe they're struggling in the burlesque world, and they just like flippantly will say like, "Well, maybe I'll just start stripping or something like that." Well, yeah, I mean, people say that about anything that they're yeah. doing. That's actually <laughs> yeah. I'm gonna I hear that in the bar world all the time. Yeah, I'll just start stripping. start stripping, and I mean, that's you know a big joke among strippers is like you think that <laughs> yeah, you think that job. all we do is just take our clothes off on stage. Like you're like yeah, you make stage money, but. It's it's all about like any freelance job, like selling yourself and oh. finding your customers and the person that likes you mm-hmm. because you can be a stripper and make no money. Mm-hmm. You can owe money at the end of the night. Yeah. Crazy, yeah. Right? What? How's that work? Mm. Well, we pay house fees. Yep. House for, fees. Uh, it's not a percentage. Going. It's like you owe, you owe for the time that you're there and you have you, to pay for. Well, depending on what time you come in, because nobody wants mm. to come in before seven. Uh-huh. We would all show up at midnight if we could. <laughs> so it, uh, from seven to 10, from 10 to 12, from 12 to two, it's a different amount that you have to pay the house to be there. Hmm. And, and on top of that, they take uh, money out of the yep. lap dances. They take money out of... Um, the private rooms that you do, but yeah, it's people think stripping is just yeah. what you do on stage, yeah, just, but that's not the money. Just gonna walk in there and take my shirt off, and make a thousand dollars. Yeah, no, you're nope. it's it's exhausting, and you're, you're selling yourself. I can't even imagine. Like it just that's that's such a vulnerable position to be inside of. Like I I feel like you know uh, on the outskirts of the service industry, like just bartending, it's like there's a certain amount of empathy and like emotions that you leave at your bar and it's a little bit hard to recover from. But like on that scale, like stripping has got to be so much further, like so much of yourself that you lay bare Mm -hmm. literally and metaphorically that it's, it's tough. I mean, I can't even imagine. I've got a lot of respect for like that profession in and of itself. It's like service industry, like 300. It's a master level. It's a PhD <laughs> class in like how to do this. It really, I, I think it really is. And I, I actually was super interested in sex work and stripping as a, like a psychological and sociological aspects mm-hmm. of, of being a human. So before I started stripping, I, I read a million books. I saw all the movies and now I'm just on the field. I'm doing it. And I, I, You're in the trenches. Yeah, I learned so much just from reading. That, that's why I, I think I'm okay. I always say that uh, there's a spectrum of the service industry. Sex work, tattooers, body artists, dancers, bartenders, musicians, performers. 
But I mean, we're all in the same business. Mm-hmm. It's just degrees of intimacy and degrees of exposure. Mm-hmm. Let's talk. We only have a couple of minutes left, and we'll probably do another episode in the not-too-distant future specifically about one or both of these issues. Um, but the last thing that I have down here, and we talked a little bit about the social acceptability, that people want to rescue strippers and people question what diver club bartenders are doing with their lives in a similar way. Um, probably not to the same degree, um, but I think it depends uh, on, you know, your, <laughs> how people perceive you. Right. Yep, mm-hmm. yep. But in addition to the, the, the social element of it and the way that people sort of perceive these as being nuisances, regardless of the actual value that they add to the lives of both their employees and to the, the vibrancy of a, of a well-rounded community that has adult-oriented businesses that are perfectly valid and valuable in a, in a community, that the government seems to have, a, a lot of the time, taken the line that they're almost default dangerous nuisance businesses yeah. that need to be strongly regulated. And New Orleans, for a long time, has... Uh, been a place, let the good times roll, that uh, just do what you want is the, one of the official, unofficial mottos of the city. And we don't have a closing time in our bars. We have a, a very vibrant strip club culture. It, it's almost exclusively confined to Bourbon Street at this point, um, but it's, it's very vibrant and very strong. And yet the government doesn't seem to want either of those businesses. They don't value them. That they don't value them. And just, just this past week, the, the last vestiges, hopefully, it could, it could still it's a, <laughs> rear its ugly head no, yet again. I'm do that knock on the metal table. <laughs> knock, knock on tin here. Yeah. There, there's uh, the last vestiges of the original uh, security proposals that came out in 2017 early that originally included, originally they included a 3 a.m. last call. And then that was transmuted to a 3 a.m. recommended Doors door closed. closing. And then that got dropped entirely because there was huge pushback. The other aspect of it was mandatory 24-hour surveillance for any business with an ABO. And or, or, or with an ATC, yeah. which is a, li- a liquor license. Uh, that would uh, include hotels. That would include grocery stores. It would include gas stations. It would include pharmacies. And it would effectively make it impossible for any citizen or any other visitor to New Orleans to go about their day-to-day lives without subjecting themselves to theoretical 24-hour surveillance. At the expense of the business as well. At the yeah, expense of the business so as well. Expensive. Not provided by for the yeah, city. Not provided by the city. Yeah. And, and, and that finally got withdrawn. And they're saying they're going to defer it to the next council. But honestly, I think the next council skewed slightly more liberal than the current one. So I think 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 we're in a good position there. Uh, But also, yeah, that was on Wednesday. We're doing this recording on Friday. (laughs) And then on Thursday, the city council voted against the recommendation of the city planning commission, which is very rare and only happens when things are very politicized. So the CPC had initially recommended a hard cap on the number of strip clubs allowed within the, within the small area of the French Quarter that strip clubs are allowed, they were going to limit it to uh, the, a, a number that would eventually reduce the number to seven maximum. Mm-hmm. And by half, right? Yeah, it would, yeah. Cut, it would cut it by half because there were, there were currently 14, and they said that they could only have one per block face, and they couldn't even be on opposite sides of the same street. So, and it's only a, a seven-block <laughs> it's only seven blocks long, this area. So that would have eventually it would have meant that only seven strip clubs remained. And it was a way to reduce the number of strip clubs by attrition. And even the CPC, they, when they came out with their recommendation to the city council, they were like, that's it's based on false research. It's all trumped up. There's no basis for this recommendation in hard facts. It's mostly just, you know, this 
fear-mongering, the ways that they've sort of redefined what prostitution is and what uh, trafficking is. And those aren't the same thing, even though they often get tossed around as synonyms. Lewd behavior. Lewd behavior, exactly. Yeah, the rules but haven't kinda... been uh, changed since the 1960s. No. Right. Well, so, nothing's changed since the 1960s, yeah. so there's but, no reason for societal <laughs> laws to adjust as well. But that also got shot down. I was very surprised. I, I, yeah, they, the recommendation that came out of the yeah. CPC eventually was that we're just going to say it's going to be a, instead of a hard cap at the current number and reduced by attrition, they said, okay, we'll just have a soft cap at the current number, which is 14. So that means that if one closed down, another one would be allowed to open. They reduced the, the density requirement requirements so that you couldn't have just one on the blacklist. I figured that would be as enough of a compromise that the city council would be like, sure, why not? We're not reducing the number. Yeah. But they ended up saying no. They said, no, we are just, we're not changing it. You can still buy right, open a strip club in that stretch of bourbon without reducing the number. And I'm grateful for that. I, I was there. I lobbied yesterday to the city council right on, on behalf of that. And, and Did you, were you interested at all? I mean, it really sounded like uh, Councilman Jason Williams really kind of listened to the complaints and things like that. He seemed to, uh, in the in the articles I read, I wasn't there. It seemed like he, the quotes that he was saying were the things that like, you know, were being brought up by like the different lobbyists and different groups that were like kind of petitioning. And he definitely seemed to be getting portrayed as like the person who was like, why isn't this being addressed? Why isn't this being addressed? He does seem, on the current city council, he seems to be the one that is most ardently and actively pro-nightlife business. Yeah, definitely. I mean, we've all seen him in our businesses. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah he's, he's definitely around. So. I was lobbying to get a zoning change for the bar I'm going to open later this year, and he actively came out and was like, hey, thank you, we appreciate your bar, and we're happy to see you expand. And I was like, that was a completely unnecessary thing to add, yeah. but thank you, sir. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, I was like, great. <laughs> Um, but yeah, I mean, how how has the landscape changed in the last couple of months? Because they've also started enforcing these arcane '60s yeah. laws about how you can't touch your own body on stage anymore. Yeah, they they did a bunch of raids and they did a silent raid at Rick's Cabaret and they changed a bunch of well, they didn't change the rules; they're enforcing them. I'm actually really surprised at what happened yesterday. Um, I I really just thought whoever had the billion dollars to do what they want would be allowed to make whatever rule they wanted to happen I actually got to sit in uh, there was a group of nine strippers that they called and we had a meeting at a lawyer's office with the city planning commission at the top of one shell square oh wow and this huge like million dollar lawyer's office it was so interesting you know we were all just kind of dressed up but my my management actually flew me home early from my Christmas with my family because they I mean at Rick's you know me and Cherry Bombshell were like these little bright eyed happy strippers <laughs> so we all got to to state our case on why we thought it was wrong and you know they all had some really strong statements but we were like we love stripping it's been really great for us and we can afford our art and this or that right. and we're not there against our own will so what they did was they came in and any of the rules that they had, like touching your own body, touching another person, um, having your butt not covered when you're off stage. If your top is off, you have to be 18 inches above mm-hmm. the ground. So they came in and, and they were like, that girl is touching her boobs. And that person put her boobs in that guy's face. We're taking your alcohol license until you change this. Yeah. And now at Rick's Cabaret... Actually, I'm not going to go into all of the no, new rules, <laughs> but but what's supposed to be happening? Uh, you know, they what we really need is is a change mm-hmm. to 
And you you sent me a picture of the new guidelines as they're posted, and there's a you're like a woman's nude body with giant like red circles X'd out over no, breasts. No, no, it's like no boobs in this strip club anymore. Yeah, it was thank, very mo- and and specifically and thank you to the state. Yeah. <laughs> for that. Did, that, did that answer your question? I feel like I rambled. Because again, no, And that was all about human trafficking, right? Yeah, sex right. trafficking. But the thing is, mm-hmm. they are creating more prostitutes by closing by the closing clubs, clubs, where some of these women, like some of these women, they can't work anywhere else. I thought they were just all going to seminary after that, or <laughs> yeah. you know, like and also getting like, real jobs. That's quotes on that. They're one creating too. more prostitutes. They're making it harder for for us. When I went back to work, because I went to Europe for a month, like mm-hmm. right when this was happening, I'm like, okay, you guys figure this out while I'm gone. Right. And I'm come back and start giving lap dances again. Right. And. I came back and I'm like, I don't know what I'm selling right now. Right. And now I have to talk more. Oh, no. And that's hard. <laughs> I'm like, let's stop talking. It's so much better. Um, but yeah, they're they're creating more of a problem. And I, th- I really hope that people are able to see that their claims are bullshit yeah. and the real sex trafficking is happening outside. I think, I think the tipping point, a lot of people, because they framed it to, to be about prostitution, about trafficking, which again, are different, but... They don't yes. frame it that way either. No. Mm-hmm. Um, trafficking is just the scare word they're using now. Yeah. Right? That's exactly. just to get anything passed. Totally. Mm-hmm. Uh, even at the federal level, they're talking about some anti-trafficking legislation that could have ramifications for local performers. And well, again, subject for another episode. Mm-hmm. We'll go in more and detail. Likewise, I mean, as far as bars and late night bars go, the conversation is crime. Mm-hmm. Like New Orleans obviously has a crime problem. No one's confused about that. But the crime isn't happening at bars. No. Mm-hmm. All the camera suggestions, all that, all things like. It's an attempt to cut down on crime by further regulating late night bars and nightlife in New Orleans. Right, and right. and similarly, like like the attempts to regulate trafficking by cracking down on strip clubs are going to be counterproductive. The attempts to regulate yep. crime by cracking down on late night businesses are going to be counterproductive because then the streets are empty at night, yep. and yeah. vibrant yeah. foot traffic is one of the best ways yep. to prevent crime. Right. Yeah. Don't raid us. Raid the streets. Like, yes. stay, <laughs> right? stay out of our clubs and like protect us while we're walking down the street. Yep. Right. Yeah, that's that's from what I've heard. That's where you're much more likely to get violently harassed just or walking down Bourbon Street than it. Right. Yeah. Oh, go protect people in neighborhoods on Crowder Avenue. I mean, like send police out there where the crime is. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So Nick, you were actually involved with the um, as far as this nightlife thing. I mean, this is this is not a new thing. This is just this is just kind of like you know an attempt to kind of like you know circle back. It's just another sure, sure. way to crack this nut when it comes down to it, right? I mean, it was a smoking ban. It was yep. the noise regulation. Yep. And it was this as well. Um, but you've definitely been present throughout all of that and just yeah, like you have been vocal with all of that um but yeah i mean do you see this going away anytime soon i mean it's a question of like administration and government priorities i certainly think that people who are in government now would happily see dance clubs on bourbon street replaced by food courts hmm. um or chain stores and i mean in some respects they'd prefer that their bars be out of neighborhoods right but uh i mean we'll see we'll see what the priorities go towards I just want to see where the bean counter is. I mean, the, number, yeah, the yeah. amount of money that comes in from like liquor sales and like taxing strip clubs and I mean, bars. We're a service industry driven exactly. town and a tourism driven town. We always have been. When you regulate and, and you remove that like unique na- those unique businesses yep. from the city, it's just like that's a, a got to be a huge financial hit. I feel like the people, the, the powers that be, seem to want to make New Orleans more normal. They want to. They still want to be a tourist destination, but they want to be the Disney tourist destination. Exactly. They want to be the cruise ship. I hub. think Disneyfication comes the, all yeah. the time. And I. I, for a long time, I was like, oh, they're not trying to Disneyfy New Orleans. It's still going to have character. But then these most recent like efforts is like, no, that's that's 
the Disney Cruise Line and the relationship yeah, that the Disney Cruise Line is going to have with the new cruise terminal that's going yeah. to the Bywater. Down there that's, on the porch. It's yeah. literal now. It's yeah, a so. literal Disneyfication mm-hmm. of New Orleans that we're fighting against. Yeah, and that's part of my hustle. Like when they come in, I'm like, oh, did you get a beignet at Cafe Du Monde? Oh, cool. Did you get a lap dance from a vampire on Bourbon Street? Let's do it. That's the same thing I say at my bar. Did you get a lap dance from a vampire on Bourbon Street? Absolutely. I'm going to start using that one. That sounds great. Well, send it to Ricks and tell him to ask for Audrey. Right on. All right, y'all. We've reached the end of our show. Um, For our guests, um, we always like to wrap up with a segment we call Parting Shots. This is just an opportunity to reintroduce yourself to our listening audience and just give one last thought for people to kind of nibble on before our next episode. So why don't we go ahead and start with you, sir? Uh, Again, Nick Jarrett from Cure the Saint Santos. What nights are you which? (laughs) <laughs> Who knows? It's, it's like Sorry. clockwork. I'm I'm at the Saint most Tuesdays for Tikioki, Cure on Wednesdays, Santos on Thursdays, and the Saint late night on Fridays and Saturdays. Great. Uh, I'm Angie Z. Um, I am performing all over the city, and sometimes you can find Audrey Rose late at night <laughs> at Rick's Cabaret. Do you have any uh, upcoming interesting shows that people might be able to catch? Bear in mind, this won't air until next Wednesday. Oh, next Wednesday. Um, I'll be at Bust Out Burlesque. Uh, my first time with them, actually. Um, March 31st. And I sing at um, Mr. Gregory Shrimp Boil pretty much every Thursday through Sunday. Um, that's off the top of my head. What's Sweet. happening? Right. How about you, Mr. Yeah. Cole? You got anything else? Hey, uh, no, I think this was a really great episode. Thank you very much for both of you for coming on. I wanted to have each of you on the uh, show for different reasons, and it finally occurred to me that there was a lot of overlap there between oh. your lifestyle choices. Yeah, so. no, it really was. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having us. Yeah, yeah. thank you. All right. Steve? Right on. Uh, nope, that's it for me. Uh, I'm Stevie Monet. This has been around with Stephen Cole. Hey, this is Cole. Uh, check us out next time. Cheers. Cheers. Yay. Theme music for Around with Stephen Cole is by Derek Freeman. Support for Around with Stephen Cole comes from Infinium Spirits, a family-owned spirits company specializing in the import, sales, and marketing of its distinctive portfolio of brands. Infinium Spirits, igniting brands. Thanks again to everyone for listening. We'll catch you next time. Cheers. I can tell by your body, you've always been a hottie.